0: comment and share.
1: Hey, great day, everyone. It's CJ. I want to welcome you to a live stream simulcast that we're getting ready to um, start sharing. I want to spend a send a special thank you to the Schiller Institute, uh, Harley Schlanger for all the work that he does with Helga Zepp LaRouche at the Schiller Institute and the LaRouche Pack. And very excited to be simulcasting their conference that's taking place here momentarily with the 9-11-21, the path forward from September 11, Afghanistan and the surveillance state. It's gonna be a very exciting uh, simulcast. Uh, tons of guest speakers that are lined up. Helga's gonna be speaking, uh, Ray McGovern, as well as Bill Benny. Um, Harley's gonna be moderating it. Um, so that's start, started, scheduled to start here momentarily in just a few moments that I'm, I'm currently uh, monitoring and watching. Uh, shout out to the people in the in the chat room. Looks like Alan's already hanging out here. Ali, uh, the king. Also, we have um, Hari. Hari's in the house. Hippocratic's in the house. Uh, Unchained is in the house. So uh, thank you all for jumping in. And um, we're just going to wait for this to start. Um, I, You know, we just got done with another live stream. I really don't have an, a, a lot to say other than just you know, just again, I I don't think that we can, we can say it enough. Um, Our thoughts and and prayers are with individuals who lost family, friends, sons, and daughters uh, during the tragic day that occurred 20 years ago. All of us can specifically remember where we were during that time period, probably to the minute. I know that I can, I can bore you with the details. No, I'll just go ahead and go for it real quick. So, so to bore to you with the details real quick, like I was very young in my career um, with with um, a company mm-hmm. during that time period. And um, I was uh, in in field management during that time period. And it was the very first day that I was with my boss. <laughs> how, how perfect he is that? Hey, Susie from Indiana. I'm Indiana's Indiana as well. I was with my boss for the very first day and we're, he's like, Hey, we're going to schedule this day together. And, and so we're, we're out traveling together and uh, that's when the first plane hit the first tower and, and we were getting ready to stop for lunch. And um, the, yeah, this is getting ready to take off here pretty soon. Um, and he's like, what do you think happened? Or do you that? And I, and I said, Hey, look, I'm like, you know, there's a terrorist Osama bin Laden and everything. And, I was like, dear Lord, I hope I hope this doesn't speak about my career <laughs> with this ASAP. And I'm sorry to be laughing because I know many of you are probably like, you know, YCJ laughing and everything. But um, so that's that's my memory of this day. We, we did not return to work that day. We sat in the uh, – we had lunch together at an Applebee's, and we stayed at the Applebee's the next two or three hours. And when we were done with that day because of the events and – Everything took place. We went to go be with our, our families because we understood the significance of the, of that day. So uh, peace, love, and we're going to kick this off. It looks like it's starting right now with a beautiful composition of of music. So here we go.
2: Hello, everyone. Um, It's nice to have you all gathered here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to say hello and welcome you to this 20th anniversary, nearly 3,000 others on American soil. It's been um, a very difficult road that we've been on, a very difficult path to find the truth about who was behind the attacks, how they were facilitated, excuse me, and why did they attack us? Um, We don't have all those answers yet. We've been asking those, and some of those questions, um, some of the answers to those questions lie within our own government. They did a nearly 10-year investigation into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for the role that they played in facilitating the attacks, and it was a secret investigation. Nobody was supposed to know about it until an investigative reporter in Florida uncovered a 2012 FBI report And although it was heavily redacted at the time, you could read between the lines that there was a lot of information there. And we served a subpoena on the kingdom over three years ago, and they did not comply. They did not hand over all the documents that were asked for. They overly classified many more documents, and they rubber-stamped state secrets on several more. This is a very egregious um, act towards the families and towards the American people. We all deserve to know the truth. We all deserve to know why this happened to us. Well, it's it's just so nice for us to all be together again at, at such a difficult time of year and show the kind of support that these concerts have always done in the past and, and uplift our hearts and open our hearts again to the beauty in the world. Um, With everything we've been through COVID and approaching this 20th anniversary, it's more important than ever that we band together and share, you know, a a unified feeling of hope um, that, you know, the world will be a better place if we just all band together.
3: Hello, and we want to welcome you all to today's commemoration day of reflection, day of self-recognition also. 20 years ago, at 9 a.m. on September 11th, Lyndon LaRouche, economist, statesman, and co-founder of the Schiller Institute, found himself involved in in an unexpected but very important role in the unfolding events of 9-11. Here to describe it is Jack Stockwell.
4: Good day. My name is Jack Stockwell. Lynn was a friend of mine. At nine o'clock in the morning of September 11th, Lynn was on my live radio show with me in Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't even remember what we were gonna talk about that morning, but only a few minutes into the show and the attack on America was underway. And Lynn immediately said, without any apparent forethought or trying to figure things out, they will blame this on Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And this is simply not possible to be done from a cave in Afghanistan. This is only possible through the complicity of corrupt and criminal elements of the United States security apparatus. So of course, it was immediately branded a conspiracy theory. And by the way, any of you listening, uh, if you have any extra conspiracy theories, I need some because all mine have come true. But if we are, if you ask the average person on the street what happened on 9-11, they're going to tell you the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and maybe the annual reading of the names of those that perished and of some um, jokester uh, possible congressional candidates coming along saying, if you elect me, I'll make sure the government tells you all the truth there is about 9 just like we're all waiting for the truth on JFK or UFOs. But what the average adult alive back then does not remember, and I was reading an essay uh, the other day by Thierry Masson, and was that that same morning after, you know, the smoke is billowing down the streets and everybody's panicking and running around, 10 o'clock that morning, Richard Clark triggered the continuity of government plan. Bush was rushed off to Nebraska with the top CEOs of the top floor Uh, corporations of the Twin Towers the night before, and the members of high office, other members of high office, I think maybe Cheney, uh, were ushered off to that mountain in West Virginia, supposedly waiting for the destruction, as that last uh, plane was supposed to do, of the Capitol building to bring an end of our constitutional republic. So a month and a half, and this is where it gets into more of Lynn's predictions, A month and a half after the attacks, the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, created the Office of Force Transformation. And from then on, the United States was no longer going to win any wars. In fact, they were going to drag wars out just as long as they possibly could. And this is exactly what has just happened in Afghanistan. The war started there right after 9-11. It was only supposed to last for a few weeks, but it never stopped. And none of the conflicts that began in these same Uh, Middle Eastern countries that began after 9-11 have ended. On the contrary, just complete instability has taken hold in Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon. And all of Lynn's predictions have been verified over the last 20 years. And it's troubling that very few people have actually, can actually see how much the world has changed all in the, uh, the footprint that he predicted back then. Most refuse to see the responsibility of the Western democracies for the crimes committed in the wider Middle East. And day by day, these these same people cannot see what has happened as Lynn also predicted the tremendous level of surveillance, the surveillance of every one of us to the point now where most of us are in denial to the level that we are being watched, monitored, recorded, lists that were being put on, even to the point where Australia is now probably the most dangerous country on the planet for human rights. And in this country, politics have completely taken over science uh, with the mandatory this and the mandatory that I wondered, you know, as I was preparing for this, I wondered what Lynn would have to predict for the next 20 years, since he was so accurate about the last 20 years. But there's really nothing to wonder. If you understand Lynn's world Lynn's worldview, Helga's, Harley's, and all the rest of the associates, then if you understand the American principle that Lynn taught, if you can see past the evening newsreaders on television, you know the only way out of this current situation is Lynn's concept of an economic unity among sovereign nations versus empire. What a prophetic declaration that early morning on my radio show. 9-11-01. 9 11 01. And if Lynn was so correct about his on-the-spot, off-the-top-of-his-head analysis of what happened that morning and what would happen as a result following that morning, what else might he have been correct about? Thank you for this honor.
5: Well, uh, I'm still sitting here looking at this incredible picture this incredible image in front of me of this burning world trade center as these two jets have just slammed one jet has slammed into each of the two towers um, so we'll go ahead and i'm going to go ahead and get my guest on here with me mr larouche yes good morning sir Good morning Jackson. well what a pleasure and an honor to have you back on my program again yes. i was hoping to move the discussion initially with what we were going to do here into the area of the sublime Yes, right. But now with uh, what has just happened um, in New York with this, uh, which, you know, it's interestingly interesting enough, just yesterday I received, I think it was just yesterday, uh, a, a bundle of leaflets from your organization in Leesburg that I regularly pass out of my office warning of terrorist attacks in America here very shortly. And uh, here we have, the morning that you're on my program, what's happening in uh, New York at the World Trade Center. I don't know if you've seen these images or pictures yet on the I television. Haven't, I haven't yet. I was just sitting up
6: here working and just heard about it before I went and called you.
5: Yeah, well, the, the, the smoke is billowing out of the one tower here. My wife called me a moment ago, and um, apparently they caught live on film the second jet smashing into one of the other towers.
6: Obviously, this is not exactly an
5: accident. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, sir, I don't believe it is. Not, not,
6: I mean, it's not a coincidence. It, it's obviously, this is so remote a probability that there, there has to be intention in this thing.
5: Well, it's one thing for somebody to strap on a jacket made of dynamite and walk into a diner on down, in downtown Jerusalem another thing to jump inside of a learjet and go smashing inside
6: and of a building. The like thing you have to look at in the, con- the context in which this is occurring uh, is two things. Now, first of all, the first suspicion that's going to be on this is Osama bin Laden. That name is going to come up prominently, whether as suspicion or just suspicion. Certainly. And uh, the second thing, which is not unrelated to the Osama bin Laden question, is this... Uh, Festival, which is planned, uh, really a terrorist festival for Washington DC. Yeah,
5: at the end of the month.
6: Yep. We have a global, we have a global process, but the financial system's coming down. That's always a dangerous thing. Because when the entire system is in being shaken up the way it is now by the financial plans, political things happen. Because various people try to intervene and orchestrate events by spectacular interventions, which will change or say, get public attention off one thing and put it on another. So I, this is obvious, I mean, I, I, I cannot draw a conclusion except the circumstances tell me something rather evil is behind this. And uh, I don't know which, but, but they're both connected like, because I know the Goldsmith brothers, for example, Jimmy Goldsmith was key in, in helping to create, he's now deceased. Uh, Osama bin Laden and people like that, the Taliban, so forth. And at the same time, his brother, Eddie Goldsmith, who is still very much alive, is sort of the spiritual godfather of this movement, which is planning to
5: inundate Washington, D.C., with some pretty nasty stuff at the end of this month. The, The FBI is now saying that a plane was possibly hijacked for this attack. If you can do that with the World Trade Center, what could you do with the White House?
6: Absolutely. absolutely. This, I've been very concerned about this. And I'm not very sympathetic to what some of these uh, agencies do. But I'm concerned uh, not just as a presidential free candidate, candidate. I'm concerned with the security of the United States and the peace of the world. And this is not good for the health of the nation or the world. These things should not happen. We could prevent this kind of stuff, but we we just don't do it because, don't, someone says let it happen. How do you how would you prevent terrorist activity? Well, the thing is, if you, if you don't if you dispense with the myth that there are a number of unknown people up there coming out of the myths and nobody knows where they come from, then you would say how can you stop the terrorist operations if you know how the world is actually organized? You know, you cannot organize a sustained preparation for terrorist operations in any country without the backing of a powerful government or governments. So that if you know what the operation is, and I would say, you know, I've I been warning against this Teddy Goldsmith operation all along because I know what it's connected to politically. It's extremely dangerous. And if I had been president or in the same position during this period, I would have had an all-out, very discreet, but very all-out and effective discussion with some other governments in the world, and we together would have taken appropriate steps to try to neutralize this kind of danger. Uh, of course, you can't—you can't be 100% in this sort of state, but you can do a pretty good job. And two planes—now that—that's pretty big. that thats, that's a, a one plane uh, that might not be preventable, but two in the same shot. No, that's not, uh, that's not small-time
7: stuff. Lynn, you were
5: saying there a moment ago that the system was over. Now, what a lot of people, what a lot of my listeners need to understand, Mr. LaRouche, is the difference between our economic systems uh, of this country that's driving this market uh, crash and basic economics, that there's a difference. between. You can go in right now and change the economics to save the system. Rather than leaving the same system of economics um, uh, that's currently afloat and watching it crash on the shores of uh, absolute bankruptcy, there are things that can be done right now to save our system and leave it intact, or not the system, but the economy of this country with yeah. a drastic change in the system. Very simply, you just use the principle
6: of general welfare, which is the, as it's actually intended in the preamble of the Constitution. As Roosevelt used that authority, you declare bankruptcy when needed. For example, most of the banks in the United States are potentially bankrupt if they're not already bankrupt. Well, do you let the banks shut down? You don't. You have the Treasury Department move in on the Federal Reserve System, which is the number of these things, take over the Federal Reserve System under bankruptcy reorganization under the authority of bankruptcy reorganization in cooperation with the states, who also control banks, You make sure that banks that must keep their doors open will keep the doors open. You must ensure that employment is maintained. You must ensure that actually it grows. You must ensure that pensions are paid. You must ensure that communities function. And you must also have some growth. Otherwise, how are we gonna reorganize on a bankruptcy if we don't have some real growth? Which means that certain projects, like infrastructure projects, necessary ones, are putting it in into place to absorb some of the unemployment which is inevitable and get the economy moving again. On that basis, using nothing but the precedents we have in our national law, uh, national history, we can reorganize this economy out of our virtually total monetary and financial collapse. Now, the world of governments and the corporations of people. good leadership is a very short
5: We got a minute left. Can you turn or, can you bring something sublime out of this? Yeah,
6: I think the point is you know when you get a crisis, which like, uh, is like a war. I mean, this this weather reporting in New York, you're talking about fifty thousand people possibly killed. You realize that's in the order of magnitude of the official death toll?
0: of uh, Vietnam? You know? Yes.
6: So this is not a minor thing. This is not something that happened. This is not a terrorist incident. This is something much bigger. But when you get into a crisis like this, the first thing you have to do, especially terrible crises, the more terrible they are, the more this principle applies. Do not panic. Do not shout fire in a crowded theater. Get the people safely. And what's needed now is to recognize that we got to this mess because the institutions of our government, forget who did it, forget who did whatever's done. Think about this could not have happened if our government functioned. And the reason our government didn't function and doesn't function, I hope that changes quickly now, is because uh, nobody took, took, uh, was, was paying attention. Yes. If we let us pay attention, and recognize that when we're running the economy the way we're running it, the way the things we've been doing, we have set ourselves up for this kind of crisis. The thing to respond to a crisis like this is to remove long term and medium term causes of the crisis itself and the situation which allowed this to happen and come
5: to this past. Linda, we've got to go. Thank you so much, sir, for being my guest today. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you again.
7: Bye-bye You just heard the prescient words of Lyndon LaRouche as the events of September 11th, 2001 were unfolding, Lit- prevent a continuation, a continuing economic collapse, and a continued confrontational uh, situation between the United States and other nations. With him that whole fight, to the end of his life, and then continuing after that is our next speaker, the founder and chairwoman of the Schiller Institute, Helga Zeppler Helga?
8: Hello. <clears throat> I greet all of you. <clears throat> well, it is quite interesting that uh, this interview, which uh, Jack Stockwell and I say hello to you also very friendly and heartily. Um, is obviously so much on the mind of uh, <clears throat> relevant uh, circles that the largest French radio station France Info uh, felt it necessary this morning to pick up on this um, uh, statement, saying that Lyndon LaRouge practically invented the conspiracy school surrounding 9/11, which uh, <clears throat> you know is. Uh, I mean, they are so afraid that the truth may may, may come out that they still feel obliged um, to slander Lynn in this way. Now, I mean, look at what, what is the result of this. I mean, I remember 9-11 very, very vividly, like practically all people who, you know, either were in, in the United States or watched TV at the time. And, you know, following uh, this incredible... Event the next days and actually um, weeks, the U.S. population was hyped into a frenzy by the media playing these uh, attacks into the World Trade, Trade Center and the Pentagon over and over. You know, almost like a brainwashing, so that people running around with yellow ribbons, they had flags, all uh, flag American flags in their in their garden. To show their patriotism. And this was a situation where, you know, the Afghanistan war was prepared. And after three weeks, uh, the war against Afghanistan was declared based on Article 5 of NATO. It was the defense case. So all the allies had to come to the defense and participate in the campaign in Afghanistan. And uh, if you now review what happened. Since 9 11 and 20 years of war in Afghanistan. If you look at the totality of this process, it is without any question the largest disaster. It has caused an incredible amount of damage, both human lives and material losses. Um, It cost altogether all these wars which followed cost over $8 trillion. $8 Eight trillion dollars, which are not invested in infrastructure, schools, um, factories, and so forth, it cost more than a million people's life. It contributed to almost seventy million people being becoming refugees, and you know the end result of it is an unmitigated disaster of the largest military power on earth, the United States, in combination with NATO demonstrating that they were unable to defeat 65,000 Taliban fighters. Now, that is not just an event. This has incredible strategic implications. And since power is not just a question of military strengths, but also of perception, uh, I think this is um, a, a very serious uh, point and very urgently requires to reflect. Now, there are two ways of responding to this. One would be to continue and escalate the revenge, the revenge against the Taliban, the revenge against everybody uh, who could be possibly allied with them. And Biden, on the one side, he said he would end the endless wars, and this would be the end of an era of endless wars, which was a very promising Statement, but I think that the habit of two, twenty years of you know war in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, other countries around the world has done something with the public discourse. So when the uh, suicide attack at the Kabul airport happened, which killed around uh, two hundred people, among them thirteen American uh, troops. Biden said, uh, to those who carried out this attack, I tell you, we will not forgive, we will not forget, we will will hunt you down and make you pay. Now, that is a language which unfortunately reminds one of of what was said by Madame Albright. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not equating now what Biden said, but I'm just referring to the, the tone. Uh, but what Madrin Albright said in '96 uh, in a program with um, 60 Minute with Leslie Style, when she was asked you know, about the 500,000 children uh, who had been killed uh, in the uh, Iraq War in the '90s, she said, "Well, that was worth the price." And then you all remember when Hillary Clinton uh, was briefed about the uh, killing, very brutal killing of Gaddafi she said we came we saw he died and you know this is um this is something you know which we have to reflect about because this is barbarism and <clears throat> we should all remember that if one and this is the other way um to go which would be to really analyze what went wrong and what method of politics contributed to this defeat and this disaster. Um, well, I think one can, would not get around to start with, or you know, at least one of the major elements would be the role of Spikno Brzezinski, because the escalation of that kind of international terrorism, as it developed in the last 40 years, definitely had to do with Brzezinski's bright idea to play the Islamic card against the Soviet Union. This was a proposal which he made in 1975 already at a meeting of the Trilateral Commission in Tokyo, where he proposed to arm and train uh, Islamists for the fight against the Soviet Union. And that was being done. And then after the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 by the Soviets, they played a very important role in the fight for ten years, and the Soviets could not win that fight either. But and, and that lost fight for the Soviets contributed to the dis- demise of the Soviet Union at large. But when the Soviet Union disintegrated, these Mujahideen did not just dissolve. You know, they had been trained, they had been equipped with modern weapons, with a lot of money. So they dispersed to um, Pakistan to Uh, the former republics of the Soviet Union, Chechnya, they they went into China, Xinjiang, and a lot of terrorism, you know, a lot of what is being accused now, what what China supposedly did against uh, the Uyghurs in in Xinjiang uh, really has its origin there that this was being promoted uh, (coughs) actually by the United States, by the British. So (coughs) these forces then, you know, Basically, uh, organized secret units, uh, assassination teams, and paramilitary squads for uh, operations around the world, and they boosted the opium trade and the heroin uh, <clears throat> opium production and heroin trade, and uh, <clears throat> so that is what you know contributed to the mess in this in this uh, region. Now. The Afghanistan war is finished, hopefully forever. But what is the situation? Uh, the UN special report uh, for Af- uh, for Afghanistan. Uh, <clears throat> they um, no, I'm sorry. The US development program uh, <clears throat> uh, F- uh, development program put out a 17 page report. Uh, about the absolutely horrendous situation in Afghanistan now uh, which are escalated by the financial warfare going on by the transatlantic institutions. This report says that there are presently 10 million Afghanistan children who need urgent humanitarian assistance to survive. One million suffer from acute malnutrition and just think about the report which uh, was made about um, the children in Yemen suffering malnutrition, which was published by uh, Beasley and the World Food Program. And you can imagine how these Afghanistan children look like. Over 4 million are out of school. Of the entire population, there are 72% living uh, below the poverty line. And with the financial warfare, there is the danger that another 25% of the po- people will fall below the poverty line, which would mean the near universal poverty, extreme poverty, meaning that 97% of the Afghanistan population are below poverty, poverty. 18 million of them are uh, food insecure, 4 million are in danger of dying of hunger in the coming winter. Now in light of all of that uh, the fact that the federal reserve is withholding 9 billion dollars which actually belong to the afghanistan people on the grounds you know that they don't 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 recognize the taliban government then the imf is withholding access to 450 million special drawing rights the world bank has stopped all financial reports so um yeah so the a UN special uh, representative for Afghanistan, Deborah Lyons, uh, she briefed the UN Security Council on the 9th of September. And she said if the sanctions against Afghanistan are not lifted immediately, there is the danger of a severe economic breakdown. Many more millions will completely fall into severe poverty and hunger. And Afghanistan will be thrown back by generations. Now, think about all this talk that these 20 years of, uh, you know, being there, uh, helping women to have access to education, to to work, Well, if they say that Afghanistan will be thrown back by generations, you know, you can imagine uh, what that would mean, and there are the Deborah Alliance warns that this would cause waves and waves of more refugees. Now, because of all of this, the currency already has plummeted. Therefore, the prices for food, fuel, medicine and so forth have skyrocketed. The private banks are completely out of cash. Therefore, they cannot even distribute money to people who have small assets in the banks. And therefore, there is a complete inability to import any food, medicine, fuel, electricity, and other needed goods. So, one of the most urgent things is we have to absolutely appeal to the Federal Reserve and to the Biden administration to release these $9 billion to unfreeze any other assets and humanitarian aids. And other monies uh, which are withhold to avoid a total breakout, a breakdown and a collapse of the social order. Also, as uh, Ms. Lyons is demanding, one has to give the Taliban the chance to demonstrate that they have really changed, and they have made a whole a variety of, of promises, um, which you know they must have the chance to, to prove. Now, this is all extremely urgent because by the hour we are talking here, children are dying and the country is in, in utmost danger. They have a gigantic humanitarian crisis. So there will be, in two days from today, uh, in Geneva, a conference on Afghanistan organized by the United Nations. And shortly thereafter, there will be another conference by the Shanghai Corporation o- Organization in Dushanbe. Bay. And obviously, uh, immediate aid and development programs must be put there. Now, I think that uh, the more fundamental question I mean, there must be an immediate aid program for Afghanistan. There is a, a, an an absolute need. If we fail to do that as a human species, then we don't have the moral fitness to survive in general. This is a test case for for our ability. To live as, as human beings. But the more fundamental question is that, you know, obviously the whole policy, which was the basis for the Afghanistan war, quite independently of 9-11, for Iraq, the Iraq wars, the attack against the Syrian government, the total destruction of Libya and many other such uh, so-called humanitarian intervention wars, uh, that has to stop there has to be uh, a completely uh, different uh, different policy and one has to reflect on the fact you know i mean the 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 sleep of reason gives birth to monsters and that sleep of reason was already uh, around 911 but if you think that the afghanistan war in one sense you know that was one thing related to 911 even so the circumstances were such that they need to come to the surface, as as my husband uh, said already on the the moment it happened. But the wars which came after that, I mean, the war against Iraq and Saddam Hussein did not even have a shred of, of evidence. I mean, first of all, you know, it was known to anybody who knows the region, even somewhat, that Saddam Hussein And Al Qaeda were enemies. He put many of these people in jail, and then to claim that he had uh, instigated or participated in 9/11 was a lie, which was known to everybody. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi, in her eternal wisdom, was so kind to reveal this about a year ago in in an answer to a question of a student, where she said, basically, you know, that she, in her capacity of the Intelligence Committee, uh, some intelligence committee in in the in the in the Senate uh, that she knew, uh, like everybody else, that there were no weapons of mass destructions, and it is also known that Colin Powell knew that before he gave his infamous speech to the United Nations. Tony Blair, who has instigated all of these policies and who is still hyping such war to continue, these people must at some point behold hold accountable for the consequences of what they did. But that is for some other time. What is right now important is that we really change the approach. If you have a cycle of violence, if you have a, um, you know, I kill you because you killed my brother, and then, you know, this goes on among nations forever, there is no good end war is not a a means of conflict resolution, and latest in the presence of thermonuclear weapons, this should be clear that if we continue this game, we will lead to our own self-destruction. What many experts fear, that if the withdrawal of Afghanistan only means to redirect forces to have more elbow room for the confrontation with Russia and China, uh, you know leading to conflict and confrontation over Taiwan, Ukraine. This can only lead to a catastrophe. We absolutely, fundamentally must change our ways. And there is a very uh, guaranteed and very proven effective and, and human way of dealing with conflicts. I want to cite at this point the role of Mahatma Gandhi, who defeated the British Empire, with the method of nonviolence, and who also uh, was instrumental in developing what was later known to become the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence, the famous Pansheel, uh, what also went into the Non-Aligned Conference, the Bandung Conference, and which was one of the key philosophical elements which went into the United Nations Charter. And International law as we know it. And this is what we absolutely have to return to. We cannot have uh, a world ruled by the rules of a few who then enforce these rules with the methods we have seen in the last 20 years. This method has failed and it absolutely must be replaced by diplomacy, by negotiation, by a dialogue. Uh, And all conflicts, all conflicts must be resolved through such methods of diplomacy and dialogue. And the question of nonviolence. I think one of the biggest heroes of American history, Martin Luther King, who was by far not just a civil rights leader, but he was one of the people who should have been president. uh, And, you know, he developed this idea that you have to find a way of reconciling and finding unity even among complete adversaries by addressing uh, pressing problems and finding solutions to that. And that is exactly what we have tried in the recent uh, period, especially uh, after the assassination of George Floyd, uh, in the creation of the Committee of Coincidence of Opposites, which is the idea that among conflicting groups you have to find the higher idea, the that which unites them, which gives them a mission to solve crucial problems uh, together. And emphatically, this was meant around the pandemic, that we need to have a world health system, the health, modern health system in every single country, because the pandemic will not bring That higher level of creativity, you can find solutions to all problems which have arisen on the lower levels of conflict. And that principle has to be applied also for the relations among nations. With other words, there is not one nation which has the right to be better or think they are better than other nations. There is not the idea that you know an unipolar world can function, but there has to be a cooperation among equals. There has to be a respect for the sovereignty of the other. But all of this is only possible if you think the one humanity first, the common aims of mankind, those problems which affect us all have to be what unites us in terms of finding the solution. And then national interests find their place in a sort of subordinated way and no nation can ever have an interest which goes against the interest of humanity as a whole.
6: held
1: hostage, abandoned behind enemy lines. Day 27.
9: Day 27, Americans held hostage behind enemy lines. We have a lot of news to bring on that front tonight. Now, tonight, let's start with your freedom is under assault. Dr. Joe Biden, not sure what medical school he went to, won't take no for an answer. Now, it's your your body. It's his choice. With an unconstitutional, illegal, unethical federal vaccine mandate, that, by the way, uh, he said he would never support. One that Jen Psaki told us that it is not the role of the federal government to do. One that Nancy Pelosi said, they don't have the authority to do it. And Kamala Harris was the one that said, it's your body, you get to make the choice. And to make matters worse, this has nothing to do with your health or safety. Instead, this is a cold, it is a calculated, it is a political ploy. Biden's presidency has been a complete disaster in every single way. Think of one thing. Can you name one thing that he's done that you could point to that you think is a success? He abandoned Americans behind enemy lines. Can't even tell us how many he abandoned. Darrell Issa says around 500. Thirteen American heroes are now dead because of Joe's Afghan disaster. When he had control of Kabul, he could have gotten every American out safely, every Afghan ally out safely, all our equipment out safely. His poll numbers are in the basement. He's desperate to galvanize support around a shared common enemy. That enemy is some Americans that don't buy into his one-size-fits-all, unscientific medicine. Think about this. One one size fits all. No medical exemptions? Let's start there. How is that following science? It's not. Especially those who refuse to follow his vaccine rules and mandates, including Republican governors, by the way, who won't act like many dictators who actually believe strongly in a principle that Joe gives lip service to, and it's called liberty and freedom and choice. Joe says it's not about freedom. It's not about choice. It is about freedom. It is about your choice. It is about your unique medical history and your current medical condition and what your doctor thinks, not a phony doctor or TV guys that think they're doctor or play doctor on TV. Americans that value their medical privacy, Americans that value doctor-patient confidentiality and anyone else who believes in personal freedom. Joe Biden's help, heartfelt unity pledge, oh, that lasted all but seven months. Now it's us versus them. And Dr. Joe's patience is wearing thin. He wants to lecture you and scold you for not listening.
10: Restore the soul and secure the future of America it requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself. My whole soul is in this bringing America together, uniting our people. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? With unity, we can do great things, important things. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge. And unity
9: is the path forward. Uh, in fact, Democrats say nicer things about illegal immigrants and even the Taliban, some of them, than the 80 million unvaccinated Americans. I guess it's open season on them. Do you know anything about their medical condition, their medical history? you know anything about what their doctors are advising them? According to the Biden administration, 20 years after 9-11, the Taliban is professional and they are businesslike. But if you're unvaccinated, and you're an American unvaccinated, you're ignorant, you're selfish, and his patience is running out. Take a look.
10: Time to start prioritizing ICU beds uh, for people who are vaccinated. They're saying the
11: Taliban is businesslike and professional. Their interior minister has an FBI wanted poster. He's got a $10 million bounty on his head.
12: In order to get those people out, we had to work with some members of the Taliban to press them uh, and to work uh, in a business-like manner to get them out.
1: I just think if you don't want to play by any of those rules and then all of a sudden you end up in the hospital, I feel bad that you, but maybe you shouldn't go and take up the resources from someone else.
8: Immigrants coming to our country with newcomers coming with their hopes and dreams and aspirations, with their optimism and determination to make the future better for their families, well, those are American
1: traits.
9: So according to the left, crossing our borders illegally, breaking our laws, that's heroic. No vaccine mandates for illegal aliens, no mandatory tests, just Joe's overcrowded cages in the middle of a pandemic with a very high rate of COVID positivity, including those not tested. And then, by the way, then you get to pick the state of your choice. You'll be dispersed all over the country, not even getting a COVID test. Joe's following the science, really? And you want to lecture... Uh, Americans and scold Americans and tell them how bad they are and how they should be hated and give license to attacks on people that have different views or medical conditions you might not even know about. But you better get the vaccine or Dr. Joe Biden is going to unleash the full force of the federal government against you and your loved ones and your employer and you will be canceled in society altogether. You'll be shut out of everything. Illegal aliens, by the way, I see that Mayorkas won't use that term anymore, starting today, apparently, or yesterday. They uh, they get no mandates and free trips to the state, right? They get free trips, no mandates, get to go to the state of their choice. And they get free healthcare and free education. You pay for that. All while totally exempt from this mandate. Take a look. United States. But it's a requirement for people
13: at a business with more than 100 people, and it's not a requirement for migrants at the southern border. Why?
8: That's correct.
9: Go ahead. The rules don't apply to illegal immigrants or members of Congress or their staffers. It wasn't even going to apply to postal workers until public pressure forced the administration to reverse course late today. But it does apply to millions of law abiding Americans. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have a rare pre-existing condition and your doctor thinks taking the vaccine is very risky and not the right choice for you. It doesn't matter if you had COVID and you have T-cell immunity from a prior infection. Cleveland Clinic says the science is pretty clear on that so far. It doesn't matter if you prefer to keep your medical decisions private. The frail, the weak, the mentally incompetent, impaired president, Dr. Joe knows best. And, of course, the mandate is deeply unconstitutional on top of all of this. At least 10 governors are now planning legal action, including Governor Noem, Governor Abbott, Governor DeSantis, and Shadow President Chief of Staff Ron Klain. He's now apparently congratulating himself, calling the new mandate the ultimate workaround for a federal vaccine requirement. But anyone with a functioning brain knows that the mandate is in serious legal jeopardy. Even fake news CNN attorneys recognize this. And that's why a few months ago, several top Democrats promised there would be no federal vaccine mandate because it's not the role of the federal government. Take a look how things change.
10: No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it be mandatory. Perhaps
14: the federal government should step in and issue mandates. And if not, are you putting the needs of unvaccinated people ahead of the needs of vaccinated people? Well, I think the question here, one, that's not the role of the federal government. Um, That is the role that institutions, private sector entities uh, and others may take. We cannot
2: require someone to be vaccinated. That's just not what we can do.
15: I am all for um, more vaccination. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have nothing further to say on that, except that we're looking into those policies. And and quite honestly, as people are doing that locally, um, those are those are individual local decisions as well. I don't think you'll ever
7: see a mandating of vaccine, particularly for the general public.
9: Oh, OK. Uh, another big change of the goalposts move like every day. Why would anyone have any faith? Want to know where vaccine hesitancy comes from? The people that change their mind every five seconds and the people that were wrong in every prediction they ever made. They keep changing everything every single day. No mask, one mask, two masks. Vax or mask. Now it's vax and mask. Now it's vax mask and add a booster to it. Apparently they were all lying and now Biden is in a desperate attempt at a political scapegoat And unvaccinated Americans fit the bill. Same guy that left open borders and no testing of illegal immigrants with a high rate of COVID positivity and then dumped in Joe's cages. That's right. uh, A Petri dish, if you will. And Dr. Joe just can't understand why anyone would be vaccine hesitant. Why on earth would anyone not trust the experts? You know, the ones that were wrong about the origins of COVID. Uh, and some actually really lied. We now know the transmissibility of COVID, the use of ventilators, the vaccine timeline, the threshold for herd immunity, the ones who promised two weeks to slow the spread, the ones who told us not to wear masks, then one mask, then two masks, then masks outdoors, then no masks outdoors, faxed and masks, and and now boosted, and on and on. Can you keep up? Even Joe and Kamala, they expressed a hesitancy over the vaccine. Maybe they forgot.
12: Let's should say there's a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well,
15: I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Um, I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump.
14: Getting vaccinated is the
15: single best defense against COVID-19 and its variants.
14: It's the single
10: best defense. I trust the scientists, but I don't trust Donald Trump. And at this moment, the American people can't either. I'm going to continue to do everything I can to encourage the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. That includes addressing hesitancy and misinformation head on.
9: Actually, unlike... like. Unlike Joe and Kamala, I actually believe in the science. I believe in the science of vaccination under Trump, and I believe in them now. And I've I said many times, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you what to do. I don't know anything about your medical history. I don't know anything about your current medical condition. But you better take this seriously. People die. I know people that ended up on ventilators, some that barely survived and some that died. I am a radio and television host. That's right. I'm a member of the mob and the media, except we're the good side of the mob. Uh, And we also are members of the press. I'm not a medical doctor. I didn't go to medical school. Now, we will do our best to keep you informed and bring on experts with all different points of view, but only you know your unique medical history and current condition, and only you in consultation with your doctors should make that informed, important decision about a vaccine. Not any television host, and frankly, not any any SWAMP member in D.C. Not any of the wannabe doctors on fake news CNN or MSDNC. Certainly not Dr. Joe Biden. I'd like to know what medical school he went to, or anybody in the federal government without a medical license. You have a personal responsibility to protect yourself, your family, and others. And how you do that is your business, not mine. But you do have that responsibility. Not Dr. Joe's either. Individual freedom, liberty is a precious right in this country. Once you lose it, it will be gone forever. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else.
10: Life gets hard sometimes. It doesn't matter when or where you served. If you're a veteran struggling, it only takes a moment to reach out for support. September is Suicide Prevention Month. Learn more at reach.gov/spm.
11: Good afternoon, Alaska, and um, we're, we're having a press conference today on some recent actions of the Biden administration as they pertain to Alaska, and quite frankly, the harm that they do to Alaska. So just a little bit of history under the last administration under president trump um, there was a concerted effort to provide opportunities for alaska in our resource especially in our resource development sphere as well as uh, uh, potential of international railroad crossings between the border between alaska and canada um, that has ceased under this new administration and i just want to highlight a series of uh the most recent attempts at uh, undermining alaska's ability to fulfill its role in the uh, in, in in the union of fifty states under a federalist system, as well as being able to provide revenue, jobs, opportunity, wealth for its people, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And we also have some um, we also have some uh, representatives from the various industries in the state of Alaska that have been affected and will be affected. And quite frankly, um, we're going to talk about also what our attempts are going to be to push back on this because we just think it's simply wrong. It's bad for Alaska. And quite frankly, it's bad for the entire world. And we'll explain that here in a moment. But uh, since January, when uh, President Biden came into office, a number of decisions have been made that um, directly impact Alaska and in the opinion of many of us, uh, not for the better. So for example, today, the Biden administration, the EPA, is uh, filing legal proceedings to restart the Clean Water Act, the 404 veto process for Bristol Bay, uh, undoing the work of the uh, past administration. Preemptive vetoes of any type um, for any project, for any project of any permit by any company is dangerous uh, and will be opposed by our state because of the precedents that will set. Just yesterday, the Biden administration announced plans to alter the entire NPRA development plan, the entire plan. Uh, we've got a situation where there's, uh, they're, they're gonna be trying to cancel uh, Anwar leases, stopping all new leases on federal public lands for oil and gas. Uh, we have the uh, reversing of the roadless rule in the Tongass National Forest, changing waters of the United States, um, trying to control more land and water within Alaska. The 3030 uh, program, which essentially will lock up not just land, but waters around Alaska if it uh, ever takes place in the uh, form and fashion that some folks want it to. Um, the uh, temps are also undermining Alaska's mineral potential. And this is probably – this is an interesting one because the mineral potential, along with oil and gas and really any resource extraction that we do here in Alaska – is really done under the best environmental regulations you're going to find anywhere, and really, what's what's at, what's at the heart here is that this administration, for reasons that I and many uh, others don't understand, believes that if you stop projects from happening here in America, here in Alaska, that somehow that uh, saves the environment, that somehow the demand for these resources will magically appear from other places in which the environment will not be harmed, in which, uh, for example, child labor issues will not be impacted, Um, and and quite honestly, it doesn't make any sense for folks that are following this. The demand for oil and gas, create revenue here in Alaska, create opportunities not just for the state, but local economies as well, as well as businesses, um, is, is, is somehow viewed as problematic by this administration, and those that support the administration's actions. But what you never hear, what is never discussed is if we don't do it here and we do it over there, what does over there look like when we do it over there? Because we, no the, uh, the uh, we have no control over the actions of foreign countries. We have no control over the actions of corporations that are extracting resources outside of Alaska, outside of America and overseas. You can only imagine, And if we're all going to be honest, we know for a fact that in many of these locales where these resources are being extracted to once again meet the demands that will always be there, the environment is not being preserved. The environment is not being saved. Wealth is really, in many cases, being created for foreign actors that aren't necessarily friends of the United States. This does not help our national security. And so the question that we have really for this administration is, why? And, and when will it stop? What's the end game? What's the goal? Is the goal to turn Alaska into a subsidiary of the Department of uh, Interior? Is the goal to, to weaken Alaska and America by depending, uh, depending upon foreign actors, many of which are not friends in the United States for our national security or key metals, minerals, oil, and gas? So quite frankly, a lot of this makes no sense at all it would be akin, for example, uh, if the uh, if the Biden administration said, let's say to the state of Washington, we're going to we're going to authorize that the Army Corps of Engineers tear down the twenty three plus dams on the Columbia and the Snake River, that um, the the, uh, the manufacturing of air lines is um, detrimental to the environment. And that wheat farming is also detrimental to the environment. So we're going to do everything we can to stop it. I would imagine that it wouldn't take very long for the folks in the state of Washington, including the uh, the Seattle City Council, to um, register their outrage at trying to destroy a state within this federal system. And that's what's happening with Alaska. And the irony, as we've mentioned before, with regard to Alaska, is simply this. In order for us to become a state, the discussions uh, in the formation of our Statehood Act really compelled us to collectivize our resources under the government uh, to be developed, to be developed to pay our way. And really that's all we're asking is let's follow what the Statehood Act laid out, our own constitution, and quite frankly, uh, what really is uh, a key component in making Alaska a viable, uh, viable state is to be able to create opportunities for its people create opportunities in wealth, revenue, preserve the environment. I think it's hard to argue that uh, the environment is going to be best preserved overseas uh, as opposed to here in Alaska with our regulations. And so we are going to continue the process of pushing back against the uh, Biden administration. Well, what does this mean? Is it just words? No, it's not. We wanna thank the legislature that uh, approved the $4 million uh, million, uh, in funding to uh, fight for our state defense, our ability to carry out our, um, our um, uh, ability to develop our resources as once again, lined out, lined out in the Statehood Act as well as the Constitution of Alaska. We're going to be asking for the legislature, unfortunately, for even more funding because we don't see any end to this. Uh, we see this continuing and probably gathering steam. So in essence, you have the 49th state that is fighting its own federal government in an effort for the 49th state, Alaska, to be able to fulfill its destiny as as one of the states within the federal system to be able to create opportunities for its own people and uh, provide revenue for its government. This can't be understated. And we know there's a lot uh, lot of groups, a lot of entities that are not necessarily located in the state of Alaska that are cheering the Biden administration on. But we can tell you that there are a lot of Alaskans and a lot of organizations and a lot of trade associations that are not cheering this on. And so once again, we wanna highlight what's occurring, what has recently occurred. Unfortunately, we be, we believe this is just the beginning. This is the beginning of this administration, um, but uh, we're, going to, uh, we're gonna do everything we can to stand up um, and face this challenge because we believe we're right. We believe that if you truly want to protect the environment do it here in Alaska, do it here in America. If you're truly sincere about providing opportunities and jobs for Americans and Alaskans, you do it here. If you're you're truly committed to creating wealth and providing for our national security so we don't have to rely on these some of these foreign actors, you do it here. Everything would lead everything would lead one to believe it should be done here. And that's what we're uh that's what we're employing the Biden administration to really think about. And in the uh, meantime, we're going to gear up for what is going to be, unfortunately, a long slog in the courts to deal with a number of these issues. And so um, with that, we're going to have a number of uh, representatives from the various industries in the state of Alaska uh, come up and uh, make some comments as well. So we're going to start with Katie Kaposi with the Alaska Chamber, and we're going to go through a whole list of other folks. And when we're done at the end, we'll take some questions.
16: Good afternoon and thank you, Governor, for inviting the Alaska Chamber to offer some remarks today. My name is Katie Capozzi and I serve as the president and CEO of the Alaska Chamber. For those of you who are unaware, the Alaska Chamber is a business statewide association. We have members all across the state of Alaska, uh, many small businesses, 60% of a matter of fact, um, representing all industries and economic uh, sectors. Our mission at the Alaska Chamber is to promote a healthy business environment in Alaska. And unfortunately, it seems we have a federal administration that is dead set in accomplishing the exact opposite. This NPRA plan review announced on Tuesday, today's EPA 404C announcement today, is just the latest in a recent barrage of heavy-handed federal policies that are aimed specifically at Alaska and threaten our ability to produce jobs, revenue, and opportunity for all. Our economy is suffering. We haven't even come close to recovering from the economic damage caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And these short-sighted actions are a continuous kick to the gut while we try to navigate our way through economy, or, pardon me, through recovery, not even growth or economic prosperity, which is what the Alaska Chamber is all about and focused on, just recovery. So I'll conclude by pivoting inward a little bit towards Alaska and offer this final thought. In this unfortunate and volatile federal environment, it is critical that Alaska policymakers do everything within their power to help us recover. And you can help us recover by providing a predictable, stable and competitive investment climate in Alaska. And Governor, thank you for everything that you're doing to do that for us. With that, I will turn it over to Deantha Crockett with the Alaska Miners Association. Thank you.
14: Thank you very much, Governor, for inviting the Alaska Miners Association to participate in this today. My name is Deantha Skabinski. I'm the Executive Director of the Alaska Miners Association. Um, the Alaska Miners Association has been around for over 80 years. We represent all aspects of the mining industry from the very small, multi-generation family-owned plaster mines up to the very large uh, operations that are throughout our state and contribute significantly to our economy, um, all of which we uh, we work together to promote responsible mineral development across our state for the benefit of our state. Um, it's a role I'm very proud to be in. I was born and raised in Alaska, and I think many of us that have been in Alaska as long as I have have always understood the value of our research. Economy And how absolutely critical it is for us to be able to develop our resources to sustain ourselves. It's why we became uh, why we were admitted to the union um, was because Alaska's resource wealth was known to be able to provide for a long term sustainable economy across our state. So today we saw the EPA make the announcement that they would take, be, excuse me, be taking steps to protect, and I'm deliberately using air quotes there, the Bristol Bay region by reinstating the 404C process underneath the Clean Water Act. This is a, a step taken despite the fact that last year we saw an environmental impact statement that was uh, developed with significant input by the EPA to uh, that concluded that pebble could be done safely and without harm to the fisheries and the water resources there. So here we have this egregious step taking place. Um, we're looking at a, an asset on state of Alaska land worth hundreds of billions of dollars to our state that is being taken off our table at the same time that we have legislators down in Juneau debating what we can do to diversify our economy, to add more revenue sources, to fix our gigantic fiscal crisis. <sighs> So I wish that it was just Pebble and it's not just Pebble for the resource industries. I think you'll hear my colleagues today and you've certainly heard Katie from the chamber say that we have seen a number, a death by a thousand cuts from this administration. And this is just the Pebble instance is one more piece of evidence that we don't think the Biden administration wants Alaska to have a healthy economy. Um, We saw immediately in the beginning of this administration The Department of Interior issue new directives that severely hampered plaster mining operations, small mom and pop, small business operations that could not um, move forward with some of their planning in order to continue what they've been doing for generations far beyond statehood, far beyond um, any of our lifetimes in this room. We then saw a massive change to the waters of the U.S., and I believe that'll get discussed later, um, but the waters of the U.S. policy that significantly burdens anyone doing business near a waterway in Alaska, which I think would be pretty much anybody. And a number of other issues that just continue to come out from this administration that ask us and certainly gives us pause at the mining industry to wonder, what is President Biden doing Uh, He started this administration with very lofty goals about the pursuit of renewable energies, none of which can be done without the industries that are operating in Alaska. But it's clear he doesn't want our industries to be part of that solution. He doesn't want the minerals to come from Alaska, and he doesn't want that development to take place and provide jobs and provide millions of dollars of revenue to our state and the nation. Um, It's sad because, as the governor said, we do a tremendous job of developing Alaska's resources in complete compatibility with the environment. And it's sad because it's denying Americans the opportunity. So with that, I'll wrap up. Thank you, Governor, very much. I would say not only for today, but for the pushing back that your administration is doing to, to help us continue to support our, our members and our livelihoods and contribute to
12: the state. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rebecca Logan, and I'm the CEO for the Alaska Support Industry Alliance. And I, too, Governor, would like to thank you for the opportunity today to join with all these people and talk about the impacts of the Biden administration's decisions. I guess I'll start off by borrowing a quote from a friend of mine I heard her say a couple months ago when she said, we can't build back better if we can't build. And that's where we're at today. I represent the companies that provide support to oil, gas, and mining in the state of Alaska. And since 2015, my members have laid off 6,000 people. 6,000 people from our trade association members. And those are the highest paying jobs in the state of Alaska. And now that we have the opportunity to start clawing our way back from a pandemic and from low oil prices, we find that we have this huge barrier to building back in the federal government and the Biden administration. This state needs more oil in the pipeline, we need more jobs, and we need more revenue. And one project in NBRA can take care of the majority of that problem, and yet we're being stopped from proceeding by the Biden administration. So we're thrilled that the governor is taking such an aggressive stance and fighting back, and I would just encourage all Alaskans to join the governor and our organizations in doing the same, because it impacts every one of us. Thank you very much.
15: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Governor, for inviting myself and my colleagues to speak today uh, against federal overreach. My name is Marleana Hall, and I'm the Executive Director for the Resource Development Council for Alaska. RDC has, for 46 years, advocated for responsible resource development across our state. My members include fishing, forestry, mining, oil and gas, tourism, the 12 land-owning Alaska Native corporations, labor, organized labor, excuse me, local communities, industry support firms, and thousands of Alaskans who want to support responsible resource development. I echo the comments of my colleagues who have spoke today, but I'll add that the continual anti-development announcements follow the Biden administration's already well-established pattern of assuming excessive administrative authority, whether it is the roadless rule in Southeast Alaska oil and gas leasing and development on the North Slope, or overreach by way of goals like the 30 by 30 goal. The threat of federal overreach on major projects, either community or resource development projects within Alaska is very real and threatens Alaskans and our economy. Once again, federal politics are playing yo-yo, whether it's Eskimo yo-yo or regular yo-yo with the livelihood of Alaskans. Alaskans deserve regulatory certainty and access to the abundant resources that surround them in order to create local jobs, develop resources and support opportunities, especially as the economy struggles to recover from the effects of the pandemic. Thank you again, Governor, for the opportunity to share our continued dismay with federal overreach and for your efforts and the efforts of the state of Alaska to push back. And now I welcome Kara Moriarty from the Alaska Oil and Gas Association. Good afternoon. Thank you, Governor, for
17: inviting all of us here today. My name is Kara Moriarty, and I'm the President and CEO of the Alaska Oil and Gas Association, often called AOGA. Our mission is to advocate for the long-term viability of the oil and gas industry in the state. Alaska's oil and gas industry is the largest private sector industry in Alaska, and it still accounts for over 25% of all jobs and wages in the state and is still the largest tax and royalty payer to Alaska. The most recent decision by the Biden administration to review the Integrated Activity Plan or the IAP in the MPRA is very concerning. The IAP is a well-considered decision that did not happen overnight and is fully compliant with all applicable laws. Regulatory decisions must have predictability and they should not be subjected to the political whims of changing administrations. This administration seems to be determined to stymie production and slow economic recovery across the country while asking foreign countries to increase production. This most recent decision coupled with all the other forces trying to stop development such as the current Congress, considering right now billions of dollars in tax increases on our industry, all of this together reiterates why it is more important than ever for the state to provide fiscal and regulatory stability. It is ironic to me that this press conference today, the governor probably didn't plan it this way, But the press conference is being held between two legislative hearings where legislators have proposed what is being characterized as moderate increases in taxes. Just a tweak, just small changes. The bill that was heard this morning, for example, would increase our production taxes by 46 to 95%, depending on the year. That is not modest, that is not a tweak, and that is not a small change. The potential for increased taxes in Alaska is real and is honestly the most immediate and pressing impediment to investment in Alaska. So the last thing this industry needs or any of the industries here today needs is more review, more taxes, or more regulations. Because of the barrage of outside attacks by this administration and others, Alaska should be doing everything it can on a state level to keep all of our industries stable and competitive. We are lucky to have a strong congressional delegation back in DC fighting for us and Governor Dunleavy here leading the charge at home. So thanks again, Governor, and we applaud you and your efforts to push back on these outside forces.
11: So thank you, folks. So Jeff, now we'll uh, open up for some questions. And if there's industry-specific questions, we'll have some of these folks come up and answer. OK, thanks, Governor.
7: We're going to start you in the room. I'll take a question from Elwood Bremer with the Alaska Journal of Commerce. Right. Elwood? um you Governor. Know, I guess we,
11: one can debate the, you know, whether the Biden administration or you
3: are right or
7: wrong on these issues, but I don't
3: think any
7: of this would was... be- I think we're right, Elwood, but that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think anybody would see that that this was un- a lot of this was unexpected. Um, so what, you know, shortly before you took office, or you know, what have you been doing maybe other than just suing, which is an every everybody takes to to work with the administration or try to find? Um, different approaches?
11: So it's been very difficult to get a uh, an audience with this administration, to be perfectly honest with you, by this time within the Trump administration, Um, I had met personally with uh, President Trump probably four times, talking about Alaska. The discussions usually went along the lines of, what can we do to increase opportunity in Alaska? Usually those words, exactly. What do you need in Alaska uh, to help with uh, jobs, business, industry? Because the last administration was really focused on making America independent of its foreign actors, to a large degree. So in answer to your question, it's been very difficult to get an audience with this administration. The uh, Secretary of the Interior once again canceled the trip to come up here, so that makes it difficult. Um, and so we are, we, are taking, we, we are working through the avenues that um, are available to us. We work with our federal delegation. They have conversations on our behalf with the Biden administration and individuals within uh, uh, Congress. But at the state level, we have to be the, the voice of reason. We have to be the canary in the mine. This is what's happening to Alaska. It's just the beginning. And what's happening on state lands, because we'll probably get a question here in just a moment. Well, isn't this mostly on state lands? It is, but it's bleeding over in the, uh, excuse me, federal lands. It's now bleeding over into state lands. So within the borders of Alaska, there is an all out assault. I don't think, I don't think anyone can characterize it any differently because that's what's happening. There's an all out assault on the very nature of Alaska. So in answer to your question, Elwood, we'd love to have a conversation if, if we thought uh, we've tried. And we will continue to try. But if we thought for one moment that sitting down and saying, hey, you know, this is a bad idea and here's why, uh, would work, we would be taking that route. We've tried to take that route. But absent of an audience, absent of a dialogue, absent of the federal government, which, quite frankly, and I don't want to get into our political history here, has strayed way far from its original uh, purpose, is now telling us what we can do in the state of Alaska after admitting us in 59 under the a concept that we would develop our resources to pay our way, so it, we may we really left with little choice but to litigate is where we're at right now.
7: Okay, now we're going to go to questions from the teleconference line. Just uh, a reminder for the reporters online, feel free to ask the industry trade representatives here in the room with Governor Dunlady. Uh We'll take our first question from Becky Boer, uh, Associated Press, and Gino Becky.
14: Hi Jeff, uh, Governor. Uh, thanks for the time. I have a two-part question. Um, at the start of this news conference regarding Bristol Bay, you had mentioned that today's announcement is undoing the the work of the past administration. But it, it those, under the past administration, we had a record of decision from the Corps that you know rejected key authorizations for this. So I'm wondering how this isn't maybe just a further continuation of what we saw at the end of that, uh, of the Trump administration on this project. Yeah,
2: that's
11: a fair assessment. And the, and, and you are correct. Um, it, it was my belief that we would be able to work through those issues that came up with the Army Corps, to be perfectly honest with you. But you're right. It began, this particular issue began at that point. I was confident in my discussions with the administration that we could work through those issues to make sure that um, if that project was to take the next step, that the environmental regulations, the, the engineering, the structure, et cetera, would be compatible with uh, the uh, environmental regulations, regulations and the expectations that Alaskans have. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty much going to um, uh, this particular project. What is happening to this project uh, ends up being a precedent when you do a, um, a 404C veto process. Um, it becomes problematic for um, many of the other um, resource extraction mining plays that we have.
14: Excuse me, it feels very strange to kick the governor off of his podium. Uh, Becky, this is Diantha Skabinski from the Alaska Miners Association. I'd just like to add on to that, if you wouldn't mind. I'll, I'll go on. <laughs> so... Um, to just provide bringing the science that has been undertaken and you develop a draft environmental impact statement that outlines alternatives that should be selected, whether the project should move forward or not, and if it should be altered. And ultimately, an agency ends up with a final environmental impact statement. And what we saw in the previous administration and at the Pebble project was an EIS that concluded it could be done safely. So you can imagine our surprise when you saw a record of decision, yes, under a previous administration, where it was completely contradictory to their earlier, uh, not that much, you know, pretty recent decision that it could be done safely. Um, So I think that's an important distinction to make in the context of your question of this is different. So today when we have EPA come out and say we are reverting to this 404C process that was previously done, the previous administration removed their determination that the 404C process should should happen, we are going to continue today that it should happen, is still contradictory from the scientific process that took place. So thank you for letting me add that.
7: Okay, let's take our next question. Liz Bluston with Alaska Public Media Liz. Yes, thank you. Uh, Governor, are you convinced the Pebble mine, as um, Pebble proposed it in its permit application?
12: would
11: not damage the fisheries of bristol bay uh no i i'm i'm not convinced uh until we go through the uh the the, the whole process to determine how this thing is going to be engineered what it's what what it's going to be uh what it's actually going to look like um the, so the the whole concept of the study process permitting process that i think is important so i'm not uh, i'm never i'm never convinced that a particular project, or play will absolutely um, uh, not have an impact, but um, we, we need to be able to go through the process to really look at the studies, look at the, uh, the science and um, the engineering, and then we can come up with, uh, I think, uh, some, some conclusions as to whether a particular um, uh, project is worth pursuing.
12: But didn't Pebble go through that process with the permit application?
11: Um, uh, I think there was uh, I think there was more uh, more discussion, more engineering. Uh, there was more discussion that was going to take place with the state of Alaska, and with uh, other federal agencies. And I think what happened here uh, today uh, has the has the real opportunity to really set this back. So th- there's a there's a real opp- or there's a real possibility that this one trillion dollars worth of wealth may never get an opportunity to go through a process in which uh, it's developed according to science and, and, and regulations that will safeguard the environment okay
7: thanks for the question Liz. now let's go to peter siegel with
12: the juno empire peter hi thank you uh, governor you've pointed out that alaska has some of the best standards for resource extraction in the world is that not because of regulations like this and so there are regulations that exist uh, in Alaska's own statutes. Uh, those could be potentially removed in the future, especially as more projects get going. So, aren't these kinds of uh, uh, regulations what makes mining in Alaska uh, the highest highest safety standard in the world?
11: Well, yeah, Peter, thank you. So, what we what we're talking about here is a series of canceling of projects and opportunity across the board, oil, gas, mining, timber, across the board. The very essence, the very heart of what Alaska, once again, uh, uh, does better than any other place, I believe, on the planet. And so regulations, are they necessary? Absolutely. That's what we were saying. We have the best regulations, uh, we believe, on the planet to be able to produce, develop, explore, develop uh, our resources. But as you can see, what's happening since this administration came into uh, into office is just a nonstop series of canceling all kinds of opportunities that we believe uh, could be done in a manner consistent with the environmental regulations, the expectations that Americans, Alaskans have. But that's not if this continues, that's not going to happen. What's going to end up happening is these things will be delayed. Uh, investment will go overseas where they don't have these environmental protections. That's the issue, and that's that's something that we all really need to consider.
7: Okay, now let's go to the keynote Peninsula for a question from Anthony Moore with KSRM Radio. Anthony?
1: Thank you, Governor. This question not only is for you, but I'd like thoughts on this question from any of the other industry reps in the room if you guys would like to chime in. My question, by taking the Biden administration to court regarding Alaska's resource development, what are you prepared to do if, keyword, if you don't get a favorable outcome in court? Thank you.
11: Um, well, we, we, I guess if you're talking about unfavorable outcomes across the board, that becomes hugely problematic for the future of the state, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, we believe that within the statehood compact, the statehood act, and we believe that within our constitution are the tools that can navigate through these uh, these lawsuits that are that are going to happen. We believe that, um, you know, in the past we've had negotiations or, or discussions. And as one of the reporters brought up, you know, what are you doing now in terms of discussions? We can't even have a discussion uh, with this administration. They're not interested. And so we have little choice, but we believe that we have the constitution, both the U.S. and the state constitution on our side. And we believe that we have um, we have history on our side with regard to the discussions as to how and why Alaska becomes a state and how and why it develops its resources. So I'm pretty confident that um, if we have a robust approach to dealing with the federal government at this level, that um, we will um, we will get uh, we will get a number of outcomes that I think will be in Alaska's favor.
7: Okay,
11: let's go back to Juno for our last two questions. Uh, We'll start with James Brooks with the Anchor J. Yes, a question for the AOGA representative, I believe. There was a uh, remark about the tax proposals being considered in the legislature right now. And I was, I'm curious about the context of that because here in the legislature, the proposal has been to increase taxes in order to avoid drawing from the permanent fund, avoid cuts to the dividend, and avoid cuts to state services. So is AOGA proposing to do those things instead of raising taxes?
17: Uh, James, thank you for the question. Um, I, our organization does not have a position on uh, what the state's uh, proposal should be on funding the dividend or state services. We've never taken a position on that in the 16 plus years that I've worked for the association, all I can say and respond to are the proposals that are being considered on our industry. And there are two different bills that are being heard today. Um, they both deal with changing the per barrel tax credit in a uh, various ways. Um, and we've seen one fiscal note and taking a look at that fiscal note and analyzing what that fiscal note is compared to what we currently pay in taxes. Um, in our view, a 46 to 90 some percent increase in our production tax is not a small change. And I sympathize with the governor and the legislature and the challenge that is before them to meet the various needs. But all of us here are representing businesses and industries, and those increases will have an impact especially when you consider what the governor brought us here to talk about. We are facing challenges from the federal administration. We are facing challenges from banks who don't want to invest in the Arctic anymore. We're uh, facing challenges in Congress where they're actually proposing billions of dollars in tax increases across the nation. Uh, so, yes, we feel like we're being attacked in every, uh, in every manner and adding a what's being referred to as a small or modest change will have an impact on investment decisions. And it's our responsibility uh, to share that with the legislature and the public.
7: Okay, uh, thanks James for that question. Let's wrap things up with a question from Sean McGuire with Alaska's So, Sean. Hello, Governor, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, I have a question that's just been passed on to me with breaking news that the president has asked that OSHA require employers with more than 100 workers to mandate vaccinations or regular testing, which could impact, we're told, around 100 million Americans.
11: I'm asking what your thoughts are on that and if you're going to do anything in response. So um, I'm just hearing about this now, so it's something that we're going to have to understand and look into. Um, so it's difficult to answer this point. Uh, I can get back to you guys, but um, this is, um, as you said, it's apparently it's breaking news. So I uh, just want to wrap sorry, up. Could, 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 uh, sorry, could
7: I go to quickly about the, the Defense day. Initiative? Sure. You have asked for more money about that, but I'm just curious what, I mean, there was $4 million appropriated back in, a couple of months ago. I'm trying to work out why it needs more money and what it's
5: achieved. Um,
11: Yeah, Good question, Sean. We're just projecting uh, down the road at the speed and magnitude of the projects that are being impacted by the Biden administration. uh, We are basically projecting that we'll probably need more assistance or at least have that in the bank if we need to draw upon it. But um, we can't just nibble around the edges. These, these, These projects that are being impacted, as was mentioned, it's create hundreds, if not more, jobs, uh, each of these particular projects, even thousands. The revenue is, is is enormous. The wealth created is enormous. And every project we don't get, you know, it'd be a different ballgame if this was a California or Texas where a project is canceled. It has a much more robust and diversified economy. Ours is a resource extraction state, currently is. We're doing everything we can to diversify the economy. But nonetheless, we have to be prepared for litigation that... Uh, if this is the first nine, 10 months of this administration, you can only imagine what's going to happen here in the next three years. So we have to be uh, prepared for that and be willing to do everything we can to fight for Alaska to become a viable state and to fight for Alaska to make sure that we have a future for our kids and grandkids. So, so with that, I want to thank you all for coming here. I want to thank the industry uh, representatives for being here. This is a serious issue for Alaska. Uh, you, you rarely see things like Save Delaware. Or, or save Rhode Island, save Indiana, save it from themselves. They, they, we have to intervene in those states so that uh, there's no more steel production because that'll ruin the environment, or there, there's, there's no more uh, corporate law offices going to go up in uh, Delaware because uh, this may have an impact on uh, the social fabric of that state. You don't see that happening. You see it happen in Alaska constantly. That our state is being treated, in my opinion, much differently than other states are being treated by the federal government. And I get it. I came from an East Coast state. I came from Pennsylvania. I came from Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was a coal mining town. Produced a lot of wealth. But I get the understanding and the concern that the environment may be impacted. But I can assure people that... If they ever went to Anwar, if they ever go to Red Dog Mine, which is difficult to get there, not too many people probably will go there, they'll see and they'll be surprised at how well we take care of the environment, that the environment is not an afterthought, that the environment is front and center. And so a lot of these folks that want to, quote, uh, save Alaska from itself, many in many cases have not been to these places I just named. Some of them have never been to Alaska. So I would ask those individuals, but I'm also going to, once again, implore the Biden administration, let's have a dialogue as to really what you're trying to accomplish here. tree is dependent upon resource extraction. This way of life, this civilization, is dependent upon resource extraction. And we do it better here in Alaska than anywhere else. And so this is a fight for this state's future. This is a fight for our kids and grandkids. It's a fact. I'm not being melodramatic. It's It's an absolute fact. You can't shut down a state's method by which it creates jobs, opportunity, and wealth and expect it to be a viable state. And I hope that's not the plan. As I mentioned earlier when I opened this this press conference, I hope it's not the plan to send Alaska into receivership. We're just the few folks that can afford it can fly to Alaska, hop into their helicopters and tool around and see a beautiful place. Alaska can be much more and Alaska can be both. And it's Alaskans that are going to ensure that that happens. We need opportunities in Alaska, not canceling opportunities. We need to do it here in Alaska. And again, we're going to do everything we can to fight for Alaska. That's my job as governor. That's the jobs of these uh, representatives of the industries, to fight for Alaska. Remember what our motto is. It's not south to opportunity. It's north to the future. And um, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we have opportunity and that um, the state of Alaska remains and continues to grow as a viable state within the uh, federal framework of the United States. So I want to thank you. And uh, I'm sure we'll be, uh, we'll be reporting more out on this topic as time goes on.
0: Testified before this committee number times. Mr. Krebs served as the first director of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Mr. Krebs also served in various roles of the department, responsible for a range of cybersecurity, critical information, and national resilience issues. Prior to coming to DHS, he directed U.S. cybersecurity policy for Microsoft. Mr. Krebs also also served in the Bush administration, advising DHS leadership on domestic and international risk management, as well as on public-private partnership initiatives. Mr. Krebs, welcome back.
13: Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Peters, and members of the committee. Uh, As you know, I previously served as the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. This was a job of a lifetime for me and a tremendous opportunity to serve the nation. When I sat before this committee in 2018 for my confirmation hearing, I cannot have imagined how challenging and rewarding this job would be. That's why it's such an honor to appear before this committee today to testify about the extraordinary efforts of the election security community to protect the 2020 election, a difficult task complicated by the ongoing global pandemic. But before I get into the substance of my remarks, I'm grateful to this committee and your leadership and your guidance over the last several years. First in shepherding what's probably the best of the 100 bills that came through the the committee, uh, your efforts to the for the CISA (laughs) the CISA authorizing statute, uh, and uh, your support of CISA's efforts securing our elections. The nation should also thank the many federal, state, and local government election partners for the crucial work that's been done that would give our citizens the confidence that their vote was counted as cast. We should also be taking a victory lap, celebrating a job well done. Consider where we started. When I rejoined the Department of Homeland Security in 2017, America had just endured a broad attack on democracy, owing to the now well-documented interference campaign by the Russian Federation. Whatever their other motivations, this campaign sought to undermine confidence in our democratic institutions. Building on the universal agreement across the national security community that we cannot allow that to happen again, the CISA team started with what needed to be improved based on the 2016 elections. First, we needed to improve our relationships with our state and local election officials, the individuals that actually run our elections. Second, we need to improve the security and resilience of election systems, particularly by phasing out voting machines without paper ballots. Third, federal agencies needed to move faster, work better together with each other and our state and local counterparts, and be more proactive in order to detect and prevent attacks on our democracy. Over the course of the last few years, we met these challenges. We improved CISA's relationships with key partners through constant engagement in building an election security community of practice. This improvement is best, uh, perhaps best represented by an election-specific information sharing and analysis center made up of all 50 states and thousands of jurisdictions. We improved the security of systems, scanning for vulnerabilities in election systems, providing intelligence briefings and rapidly alerting to emerging threats, in deploying security system uh, sensors among other measures. And while we also princi- while we were principally focused on stopping actual hacks, we also had to contend with perception hacks, a form of disinformation which we countered with our rumor control website. We contributed to the cross-agency effort to protect the 2020 election by surging coordination and collaboration with our partners across the national security space. In conclusion, because of these and other efforts, on November 12, 2020, government and industry representatives from the election security community issued a joint statement reflecting a consensus perspective that the 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. That statement reflects the confidence these officials gained based on years of work poured into improving the security and resilience of our elections. It was based on the strong operational relationships developed across the election security community. It was based on the tremendous partnership between CISA under the thoughtful guidance of this committee, the FBI, the Election Assistance Commission, the Department of Defense, and the intelligence community. It was based on an intimate understanding of how our elections work here in the US. It was based on the increase in paper ballots and audits across the nation, and probably most importantly, It was based on the professionals the heroes that conduct elections in this country while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election of that i have no doubt chairman johnson ranking member peters and members of this committee thank you again for the opportunity to be here today for your leadership and for your support of CISA. i look forward to answering your questions and sharing more about our efforts to protect 2020.
0: thank you mr krebs for your past service and by the way i I think under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, under you know while I've been chairman, I think DHS, now in the form of CISA, has done a very good job. As you talked about the you know from eighty-two to ninety-five percent paper ballots, I mean that's that's improving our uh, election integrity. So I appreciate all, all all your efforts and really all the men and women who work within DHS and CISA to to do that, uh, Mr. Troupas, um the. Decision by the Wisconsin Supreme Court obviously went against you, maybe not totally against you. I did read the rather scathing dissent from the chief judge. Can you just describe exactly what, in summary fashion, what the Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision was based on your lawsuit uh, talking about all all the areas that you have concern with? Certainly, certainly. So uh,
3: the Wisconsin Supreme Court um, was urged by the Biden campaign not to address any substantive issues, and that's exactly what happened. The, the 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 Biden campaign argued to the court that we're not going to talk about any of the substantive things. We're not even going to dispute the things I just t- brought up to you. But instead, you just shouldn't hear them because a state agency, the Wisconsin Election Commission, had authorized some of these activities. um and candidly, uh, as the as Chief Justice Sack and other dissenters held, one, The claims are substantive, they are substantial, and they needed to be addressed. Second, the Wisconsin Election Commission is a bureaucratic organization explicitly that the same court just four months ago said has no meaning. It is not law, it is some advice given and that the statute should control. We were disappointed, not so much in the decision, but in the fact that the decision itself is premised not on an analysis of the law, nor the analysis of the claims. It's it's an idea that we should not have a transparent system, that you're not gonna address these things. And that's what they argued. So it's disappointing, especially in Wisconsin. And Senator Johnson, as you know, we have a long history in Wisconsin, unlike other states, I know unlike other states, of high transparency. Our recounts were conducted with utmost integrity by both Milwaukee and Dane County with thousands of volunteers able to look at those items. And it's really a sad day, frankly, when the opposition doesn't argue we're wrong. It argues we shouldn't be heard. That's a strange thing in a state that is so transparent as ours.
0: Just real quick. uh, I know former director Krebs talked about the the men and women who run these elections. I had about a at least a half-hour phone conversation with the county clerk of my town of Oshkosh voting precinct and gave me all kinds of good information. I will tell you, if if every county clerk ran their elections like Jeanette Mertens, Mertens does, we'd have a completely secure election. So I, I think that's I think that's true of the vast majority of of uh, elections in, in different precincts. Uh, Mr. Bernal, uh, Mr. Troop is talking about his his the law. That he was arguing before the wisconsin supreme court was basically ignored you you had a similar statement that it wasn't that the information that you just presented the committee it was never rebutted it was simply ignored can you talk about that
3: uh yes mr chairman it was extremely disappointing that rather than address our issues and the data that we presented head-on they simply tried to use technicalities and limiting our evidence, limiting the amount of witnesses we could bring forward, saying that we couldn't introduce any live testimony but only 15 depositions, only used 15 depositions to show 130,000 instances of of voter fraud. And then when it went to the Supreme Court of Nevada, they gave us two hours to brief the issues before immediately coming down with a decision. A record was over 8,000 pages long. We were never fully considered by those courts. They never took a good, hard list at hard evidence.
0: So Mr. Krebs, you know' I've, I've obviously you've had you've testified here on this specific issue, uh, the potential for foreign interference to have an impact on our elections. Um, we've had private conversations. You know, I, I've always categorized the ability to for foreign foreigners to interfere with the election kind of three three buckets. You know, one is changing the vote tallies on the machine. Secondly, is hacking into voter registration files, which could cause all kinds of problems, but quite honestly, it'd probably be te- detected on election day when there's chaos. And then third, what I think is a more serious problem, the, the one more difficult to detect,